Uh, tonight, as Stephen said at the beginning, we are starting a new series. Uh, it's called Elevated Jesus, which is actually going to take us through the book of Hebrews uh, over the next few months. And uh, Hebrews, as many of you are no doubt aware, is an intriguing New Testament book, and I, I will explain why in a, in a moment. But right up front, let me be clear on my aim or what my hope is for this series, and that is to elevate Jesus. That, that is my sole intention during this series. It's to elevate Jesus and intensify our focus on him. Uh, if you were out this morning, you'll know that I finished the service by encouraging us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And, and as many of you know, that is a phrase and a critical piece of advice that comes from the penultimate chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews ends, if you like, with this idea of fixing your eyes on Jesus. But actually, Hebrews also begins in that place, as we're going to discover in a moment. And so I want to elevate Jesus through this series in order to kind of sharpen our focus. Now, as we've been when singing, Jesus is already elevated. We've just sang, he is exalted. In verse 3 of the first chapter that we're going we're gonna to read, or part of what we're going to read, we, we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus is literally elevated. But the other reason for this particular title is because one of the strong messages that, that comes across, it kind of screams at you from the pages of this epistle, is that Jesus is superior Two, Jesus is greater than, he's, he's superior to the angels, for example. He is greater than Moses. He's greater than the Torah. He's greater than some strange character called Melchizedek. Hebrews elevates Jesus to a whole other level. And I kind of, during the series, want us to get that, but not only to get that, I want us to do that, to actually elevate Jesus. Now, we are going to run this series on a Sunday night alongside a different series. Uh, this, the other series we're going to run alongside this one's called Controversial Jesus. So in other words, what we're going to do is one week we're going to look at Elevated Jesus, and then the next week, Controversial Jesus. So one week we're going to celebrate the supremacy of Jesus, and then on the other week we're going to wrestle with the sayings of Jesus. And particularly those sayings that we wish Jesus had never said, because they're difficult and they're controversial. So for example, when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his mother and father, his wife and his children, their brothers and their sisters, yes, even if they do not hate their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Like, that is a crazy thing to say. So we're going to wrestle with some of those more controversial sayings of Jesus alongside elevated Jesus. Okay, let's turn to Hebrews. It starts on page 1201 in our pew Bibles. But uh, before we kind of read the first four verses, we need to know, as I say, a few things about this book. And so, lots of you know this already. So the, for a start, the, one of the problems about this book is that we have, we have no idea who wrote it. Or at least we have no clear idea who wrote it. The author's identity is and has remained a mystery. 
Lots of people, of course, have suggested who wrote it, have guessed who wrote it, who have debated who wrote it. Uh, so traditionally, people thought it was the Apostle Paul who wrote this book, but that's not, that's not clear. That, that's not absolute. So some people have said, no, I, I think it was Apollos who wrote this. Barnabas has been suggested. Luke has been suggested. And about 20 years ago, there was a book came out that said Priscilla, who was an early church leader and an associate of Paul, that actually, if you look at it, authorship points to Priscilla. The fact is, we do not know for sure who wrote Hebrews. As Origen of Alexander said, he was an early church theologian and scholar, he said this, only God knows certainly who wrote this letter. The second thing about it is we also don't know who it was originally written to. In most of the ancient manuscripts, it's addressed to the Hebrews, and therefore, rather than describing Hebrews as a book, if it was written to the Hebrews, it's better to describe it as a letter or as an epistle. But in terms of the precise target audience, who exactly were the Hebrews? Well, we can't be certain. Most people believe it was meant for a community of Jewish Christians who were having a hard time because of their conversion, and they were considering packing it in. They were considering falling away, and therefore this letter was written to them to encourage them to keep going. Don't give up meeting together. Press on. Maybe. And the third thing about Hebrews, so one, we, we, we're not, we don't know for definite who wrote it. We're not sure exactly who it was written to originally. And the third thing is it's not an easy book. It's not an easy epistle to read. It's certainly not an easy one to understand. As Tom Wright says, Hebrews is one of the most bracing and challenging writings in the New Testament. R. Kent Hughes says that no New Testament book has had more background research than Hebrews, and none has spawned a greater diversity of opinion. Or as Albert Muller Jr. comments, Hebrews is not for the theologically faint at heart. So if you're theologically faint at heart, don't come every other week. I'm only, I'm only joking. Do keep coming. So in some ways... By saying all that, what, what I'm really wanting to make clear is we are entering into, as we enter into this series, we are entering into tricky territory. We're entering into tricky territory, and we need to be real about that. We need to be honest about that. But let me just keep coming back to our intention, our desire, and that is to elevate Jesus. That's what this is all about. So even though we may wrestle with this and struggle with it at times, the whole purpose is to enlarge and swell our vision of Jesus, and Hebrews does exactly that, even though it's tough. I came across this phrase recently, expanding souls encounter and expanding Christ. That's my prayer. I hope our souls were kind of grow a bit during this series as our vision of Jesus grows a bit. Okay, let's start to read. And as we always do, let's stand for the public reading of God's soul-expanding word. So first verse. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Grab a seat. So one of the first things that we, we recognize here is that, that we worship and we serve a talking God. We worship and serve a God who speaks, a God who communicates. As the, as the writer here tells us, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, Jesus is God's final word. It's the ultimate medium of communication. But before we kind of explore that thought and what that means, let's not miss the fact, just this pure fact that God is a speaking God, which in itself is grace. It's pure grace. The fact that God speaks to, I mean, we don't deserve God's life-giving words. We don't. And yet, we can hear them, and we can receive them, and we can engage with them. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us how we have heard them and how we hear them how we've heard them in the past, how we hear them in the present. And so the writer begins, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so the emphasis coming across here is on the great diversity of God's speech in the Old Testament. Now, the Bible makes it clear that even before the prophets opened their mouths, the cosmos, if you like, was filled with God's eloquence. Here's how David sings it in those famous lyrics of his. You all know where I'm going with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. And so as someone has said, the cosmic eloquence of God is deafening. Love that thought. The cosmic eloquence of God is deafening. Question is, do we hear it? Do we hear it? But there's more, far more, because as it says here, God hasn't just spoken this in that way, although it doesn't say it in Hebrews, this, the, but the, the cosmic eloquence, but it says here that God has spoken and speaks via the prophets. And what the writer actually says is he, he did that at many times, and then I love this phrase. He did it in many ways. Not just at many times, but he did it in many ways. You know, one of the really interesting exercises to do is think about the various ways, the various devices that God used to instruct people and instruct his prophets in particular. So, for example, God speaks to Moses at Sinai in what? In what? Yeah thunder and in lightning. It also says he speaks to Moses in the voice of a trumpet. How does, how does God speak to Elijah in a what? Still, small voice. How does he communicate with Ezekiel through what? Visions. How does he communicate with Daniel through what? Dreams. How else did God but a congregational feedback. 
enjoying this. I can't actually see you. I hate these glasses. It's rubbish. I really do need to buy fairy focus. Anyway, uh, how else has, did God speak to people? Some of the more interesting and even bizarre ways that God communicated, not just the prophets, but to other people. How did he speak? Donkey. Through a donkey. Exactly. You were just dying to say that, Elaine, weren't you? <laughs> I could tell straight in there. And you know, whenever, whenever many people, and particularly the prophets, received what God had communicated to them, they then went on to communicate and use different methods of communication and passing that word on. And so they spoke in sermons, or they did signs. They asked questions, they gave answers. They did drama, they engaged in discourse. And what all of this demonstrates and reveals is that God longs to and wants to communicate. God is a talking God, a communicating God. God speaks. He wants to reveal more of himself, reveal more of who he is and his ways. So the heavens speak. Cosmos, cosmic eloquence of God is deafening. The prophets speak and they continue to do so. But there's even more. And by verse 2, we are kind of right in there. And this is why I'm saying this book doesn't just end with a focus on Jesus. It begins there because here the author says, whoever the author was, here he says, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So you see, it's all about Jesus now. I know it's a phrase we use often. I know some people like it. Some people are not that comfortable with it, but it is all about Jesus. He is the fullest and most complete revelation of the Father. And so the Apostle John, the way he put it in, in the first chapter of his gospel is this, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, in other words, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, but he has made God the Father known. He, I love the way Tom Wright puts it. God had for a long time been sending advanced sketches of himself to people, but now he's given us his exact portrait. Love that. See, God speaks to us by his son, Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus. And then at this point in this letter, this epistle, in the space of just two verses, Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, we are introduced to or reminded of seven realities about this Son. Seven realities about Jesus. And in the time left this evening, what I simply want to do is emphasize and identify those seven truths. And by doing this, I want to enlarge and increase our understanding of Jesus, increase our worship of Jesus sharpen our focus on Jesus. I want our souls to expand a little as together we encounter an expanding Christ. So here we go, the first thing. And I do want to acknowledge Kent Hughes's helpful commentary on these verses. But the first thing about Jesus is he is inheritor. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed Heir of all things. Heir of all things. You know, back in, back in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, as the writer talks about the Lord's anointed and the Son, which was a clear reference to the coming and promised Messiah to Jesus, he says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession.'" 
Jesus was going to inherit all things. Paul in Colossians 1 says that all things were created, not just by Jesus, we'll come to that, but all things were created according to Paul for Jesus. So Jesus is the heir of all things, people and planets. And one of the most mind-boggling thoughts around this is this, something we've looked at before. We are Christ's inheritance. I don't know if you've really ever thought about this. But we came across this revelation whenever we read our way through Ephesians during our True ID series. Paul prayed that the Christians in the church in Ephesus would open their eyes and open their hearts, and I quote, to the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints. Here's how the New Living Translation puts it. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called. And then get this, his holy people, us, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Is that not an incredible thought? That Jesus is the heir of all things, and we are his treasure. I mean, this is how highly valued we are in Christ. And if anyone here tonight is kind of struggling with their identity, struggling with their self-esteem, struggling with their self-awareness, realize afresh that Jesus is inheritor of all things, which includes you. You and I are, to quote Scripture, his rich and glorious inheritance. And you know, we can expand this even further because as Paul's letter to the Romans tells us, we are also co-heirs with Christ. And so because Christ and Christ alone is heir of all things, and because we live in him and we belong to him and we are his children, we are therefore co-heirs with him. We are heirs of all things as well. Jesus is inheritor. The second thing from these two verses in Hebrews that we discover is that, as I said, Jesus is creator. Look at the end of verse two. In these last days, he's spoken to us by a son who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world or the universe. Again, this isn't the first time in scripture you come across this idea. John 1 refers to Jesus as the word the word who was with God, the word who was God. And then in verse three of John 1, we say, John says, through him, through Jesus, through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. Or back to Colossians 1, as I quoted a moment ago. For by him, says Paul, all things were created. Jesus is creator. To quote one writer, I love this. He created every speck of dust in the 100,000 million galaxies of the universe. He created every atom, the sub-microscopic solar system with their whimsically named quarks and leptons and electrons and neutrinos, all of which have no immeasurable size. Jesus is creator of all things. All things have been made through him, by him, according to the writers of Scripture. And don't forget that Jesus not only creates, but he also recreates. So if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Jesus creates, Jesus recreates. Thirdly, 
Jesus is sustainer. Middle of verse 3, the writer here says that Jesus is sustaining. The Son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is actively holding all things up. I think there's certain versions, I think it's maybe the King James Version talks about upholding. This is the, this is the, the language it uses. But Jesus is upholding all things. Or to quote Paul again, Colossians 1, in Jesus, in him, all things now hold together. All those quarks and leptons. Used to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. You see, Jesus didn't just create, he didn't just bring something into existence. He upholds it. He sustains it. And if Jesus can sustain the universe, what that means is he can sustain us. Despite how wrung out, wiped out, stressed out we feel. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Surely, if Christ upholds all things, he can uphold me. If the word of his power upholds earth and heaven, surely that same word can uphold you. He upholds all things. Inheritor, creator, sustainer, expanding Christ. Fourthly, radiator. Now, this is based on the beginning of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I realize that word radiator isn't the best because immediately everybody tends to think of heating devices at home, don't you? But you know, it's hard to get a better one. And so what you sometimes find is people replace the whole idea of Jesus as radiator with Jesus as reflecting or reflector. But that's not quite right. Because you see, Jesus doesn't simply reflect God's glory. Jesus is part of it, isn't he? He doesn't just reflect it, he's, he's part of it. Another way to explain this is that the moon reflects light, whereas the sun radiates it because it is its source. Isn't that right? The moon reflects it, the sun radiates, and therefore Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is radiator, which is why, for those of you who, who maybe are familiar with creeds, the Nicene Creed, whenever it refers to Jesus, how does it refer to Jesus? God of what? God of God, light of light, very God of very God. And so Jesus doesn't just reflect God's glory, he radiates it. And therefore, looking at Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God. Looking at Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God. Fifthly, representer. Verse 3, the Son, this is the first read still in these just two verses, the Son is the exact representation of God's being. Now, whenever I said they're not for the theologically faint at heart, the book of Hebrews, here we are in the deep water now. Because this touches on the profound, the glorious mystery of the Trinity. And the writer is telling his readers here that Christ shares the divine nature with the Father. The exact representation of God's being. The word translated exact representation apparently refers to the image on a coin which perfectly corresponds to the image on the kind of die or the engraving stamp. In other words, it's, it's a clear-cut impression. 
Jesus is therefore completely the same in his being as the Father. He is, again, some translations, the way they put this, they don't say the exact representation. They actually say that Jesus is the exact imprint. However, there is still an important distinction to make because both exist, in a sense, separately as do the stamp and the engraving or and its, and its imprint. So whenever John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, he says, yes, that the Word was God, but then he also says the Word was with God. Was God and was with God. Was God same in being, was with God. In other words, distinct. And distinct. And the key, the key issue to get our kind of expanding souls and heads around is that Jesus is just the exact imprint of God. And therefore, if we want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to get to, if you want to, get to know God better, get to know Jesus. Inheritor, creator, sustainer, radiator, representer. Sixthly, still in verse three, purifier. After making purification for sin, says the writer. And, and it's almost as if this, this, this kind of catches us on, on, on our hoof, so to speak, because the writer all of a sudden catapults us to the cross. He intensifies our picture of Christ as the one who paid for our sins by his own blood in that once and for all sacrifice. Why? In order, why did Jesus die? In order to purify us, in order to cleanse us, in order to clean us up, in order to forgive us, in order to reconcile us to God again, not because of anything we have done or could do. Why did he do it? He did it so that we could be purified. Jesus is our purifier, says the writer. And then finally, the, the, the seventh thing, ruler. Because after making purification for sins, he sits down or he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is in that place of exaltation. He is elevated, Jesus. And that is a place of highest honor. And so the question is, what does that mean for us? What should that solicit from us? And again, the only right response is our total worship. And therefore, as, as Stephen read earlier, Philippians 2, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is supreme Supreme Jesus, exalted, elevated. But just one final comment on this whole idea of Jesus as ruler, Jesus as being exalted. Because what is Jesus doing right now at this place of exaltation, at the right hand of the Father? What is he doing right now that has implications for us? He is interceding. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So this glorious, this cosmic Jesus, who is these seven things and more, is currently praying for you. Is that, is that not just mind-blowing? Is that not soul-expanding? 
The sevenfold supremacy of Jesus wrapped up in two verses. Inheritor, creator, sustainer, radiator, representer, purifier, ruler, and it's that Jesus that we're to fix our eyes on.